Welcome to the Lift Church podcast. We pray that this message encourages you and inspires you to live up to your God-given potential. Amen. Cool. Well, story time. 101 years ago, 1917, in October, um, something really significant was taking place in the Middle East. Um, the Australians um, were fighting in the Middle East as, as um, part of this contingent. They call it Australian Light Horsemen. There were a few British, a few Kiwi soldiers there all together. And they had come to the outskirts of a city called Beersheba. Beersheba. Say to the person next to you, Beersheba. Beersheba, literally. And um, that's a I don't know if that's what they exactly looked like, but that's a rendering of it. I don't think they were planes. I don't know why there's a plane there. But they were at the outskirts of a town named Beersheba, and they were in this really important climax, turning point in the war. You see, the, uh, these, these forces, they had, the Allied forces had come to Beersheba twice already, and both times they failed. One of those times was especially demoralizing because of the chain of command. They didn't really know what was going on, and the, the, they were about to overrun Beersheba and take over it. And then there came the order, you need to pull back. The, the victory was literally within their grasp if they continued to push on, but somehow there was this uh, uh, miscommunication from high command that, that thought that they were actually going to lose, and so they said, better retreat before we lose too many more men. And so they retreated, and then the next time they came again, they couldn't bust through the defenses and, uh, because it was a rush job. They thought, oh, we nearly won it, so we're going to try again, and they lost. And so those were the two attempts at taking over Beersheba and now was the third attempt. In, in charge of this force was a, was a man named Lieutenant General Sir Henry Chauvel. I don't know if I'm saying his name right. He's Australian, but he had a French last name, so I think it's Chauvel. Um, and Mr. No, sorry, Sir Henry, I should call him properly, Sir Henry was leading the troops, and they got to this outskirts of Bisheba, and it was three o'clock in the evening. There was another 90 minutes of sunlight left, but more importantly than the 90 minutes of sunlight was the fact that the Germans and the Turkish were ready for the Australian light horsemen, and they had done something extremely, extremely evil. They had rigged all the wells in Beersheba to blow. There was 400,000 liters of water held in these wells in Beersheba. And the Australian forces at that time had already gone um, for 36 hours without any refreshing of resources. Their horses had not had a single drop of water for a day and a half. And so they had 90 minutes of sunlight, 90 minutes before the water would be completely lost to them. And they stood on this precipice of, of this town and of this moment and Sir Henry orders a cavalry charge, which is something that the Middle Eastern people were not very familiar with because they did not really have horses. They had camels, not horses. And so cavalry charge was a, a little bit, it was Australian, put it that way. It was very Australian. And Sir Henry said, we need to take this, let's take it, let's seize this moment. And so uh, the, 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 the cavalry charge uh, uh, happened and they, they surrounded the town. They, they started to fight through the defenses and it was awesome. 
I was reading it, I couldn't, but I could picture it in my mind because these, these Australians are not very unlike modern-day Australians. They were, they, they, they were chaotic. They, they, they weren't marching in rank and file through the town. They, they were taking initiative and they were doing the job. They did what needed to be done. They were just charging through, uh, taking out defenses. Uh, the Turkish soldiers were completely shocked and awed by the, the event. Uh, they, they hadn't seen such muscular horses or, or, or crazy people that would literally just charge at them with bayonets and do whatever needed to be done. And so most of the defenses had fallen, and it came to this moment uh, where the, uh, a, a few of the soldiers finally got to this command center. And at the command center was a 27-year-old German officer. In his hot little hand, he held the switches to blow up all the whales. Luckily for the Australians, this 27-year-old officer wasn't the one who did all the demolition work. He was just the stand-in. The engineer had actually run off already. He, he, had, he had retreated, and he was like, all right, here you go. And so this guy, he wasn't actually familiar with the controls and the switches, and he had flicked a couple, and he had blown up a couple of things in Beersheba, but they were like an ammunition dump and, a, and some sensitive uh, uh, data, but they hadn't gotten to the wells, and the Australians swooped on him. And if he knew how important the decision that stood before him was, maybe he would have made a different decision. Because if he had understood that without taking that water and those wells, the Australian army would have been parched they would have had no water for days. They would have to retreat another 36 hours back to the last depot where they had resources to refuel and to, uh, well, refuel their bodies with water and food. That 36 hours would probably mean the death of most of those horses and probably a ton of those men as well. It would mean that the Australian army, as well as the Allied forces, would be severely crippled and the Middle East would probably never be taken. Sir Henry had taken a risk, but he knew that this was a moment. This was an important moment. And luckily for them, this German officer surrendered without flicking those switches. Maybe it was the horses. Maybe it was the Australian shouting at him. I don't know, but he surrendered. He simply surrendered. And that marked a turning point because it was a stalemate up to that point. The Middle East, the war in the Middle East was a stalemate, but because of one cavalry charge, with soldiers that were running on empty, they took over a town, they gave them the resources to continue to push the Turkish and German troops out of the Middle East. History will look back at the Battle of Beersheba as one of the most significant victories of the Allied forces. And I love this story because I love Australians. I love being Australian. I love the fact that, that, that we don't really take orders. I love the fact that we get the job done. I love the, the, the fact that when, when, there's, um, where, where there's a need for bravery, when there's a need for, uh, for something to be done, when there's an injustice that needs to be corrected, Australians tend to be at the forefront of that. And I love that. But I'm telling this story not because I'm trying to be patriotic and prove that I am Australian. I am telling the story because of something else that's very significant, and that is the fact that Bathsheba's significance was found in its wells. 
And I love when I read this story earlier this year because if you have been involved in the Bible for any period of time, you will know that Beersheba is a, a, a place that is mentioned many times in the Bible. And uh, in fact, when you look at the first mention of Beersheba is in Genesis 21. And in Genesis 21, we read about Abraham, um, who we see as a patriarch, as a, as a founding father, really, of faith. And, and what had happened in Abraham's life is that God had called him out of his father's house and to go to a place that we later on called the promised land in the Old Testament. And, and, and Jesus, no, sorry, God wanted to take Abraham from his father's house. He wanted to make a nation out of Abraham and place him in a, in a location where he could later take possession of through his descendants. And one of those places was Beersheba. But in Genesis 21, Beersheba wasn't a city. Beersheba wasn't even a town. Do you know what Beersheba was? Beersheba was referred to as the desert of Beersheba. The desert of Beersheba. Can you imagine being called out of a place of comfort? Maybe he's a high-paying job. Maybe he's a place uh, where, uh, maybe he's a God saying, you need to go to a third world nation and, and serve me over there. Can you imagine all of that? And, and God said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make something great out of you. I'm going to make a nation out of you. I'm going to give you this land. It's going to be an amazing land. And then Abraham makes this long trek and he gets to this place and he looks around. What does he see? Sand. He turns a little bit. Let's see. Hopefully, there's something a bit more. No, there's sand. What's of it? Oh, sand. Maybe a cactus. I don't know what grows in the Belize. Maybe there were those dried bones of a camel that tried to trek across the desert but failed. But can you imagine what it's like when God takes you to a place of promise and it looks completely dry? Have you ever been involved in the journey of life where God? says that I'm a good God and you can trust me, so come with me, I'm taking you to a great place, and you look at it and it looks horrible. It looks like, why am I here? What is with this? Why has my journey led me to this point? What is this supposed to be? We have the hindsight of knowing that Beersheba later on becomes the southern tip of the uh, um, the land of Israel, and we learn later that Beersheba actually becomes a place of great produce. It becomes a place where farming and cultivation takes place. So much so, it became a land of abundance, so much so that in the Middle East, only a hundred years ago, it was seen as a pivotal town. It survived being a desert, but there are some times when we go through life and we will encounter deserts. And sometimes when we encounter those deserts, it's easy to give up, isn't it? It's easy to look at this season, this situation, this place that we have landed ourselves in by following God, by the way, and it suddenly it's dry, it's dead, it's life-sapping. And you look at it and you go, I left that for this. I left that for this. What is going on? As I was preparing this message, this verse came to my mind in Psalm 84. Psalm 84, verses 5 to 7. I love these verses. It says, Blessed are those whose strength is 
in you, in God, whose hearts are set on pilgrimage. Can I just talk to you for a moment? Abraham was on a pilgrimage. Abraham was called by God to come to this new land that God was calling him to. He left a temporary accommodation, if you will, to go to a place of eternal promise. And in the same way, all of us as Christians, we have to realize that our lives on earth is but a pilgrimage. There is something more eternal. There is something greater that God has promised for each and every single one of us. Without fail, God promises something greater, and He tells us that we need to set our heart on pilgrimage to realize that our lives on earth is meant to be done as a sojourner, not a settler. We are meant to do this as though we are simply passing through rather than staying, and that is something that's really important. Blessed are those whose strength is in you, whose hearts are set on pilgrimage. As they pass through the valley of Baca, they make it into a place of springs, the autumn rains also cover it with pools. They go from strength to strength till each appear before God in Zion. Now recognize something important here. The valley of Baca isn't a real place. The psalmist was using the word Baca and putting it with valley to signify something. The valley of Baca literally means the valley of weeping, the valley of lamentation, the valley of mourning. Perhaps you could Say it's a life-sapping place, it's a place of loss, it's a place where life seems to be absent, maybe just like a desert. And the psalmist says, as they pass through this desert, they make it a place of springs. And the word springs here is actually the same Hebrew word that can be translated wells. They pass through the desert and they make it a place of wells. But then the psalmist goes on to say this really annoying line. He says, The autumn rains also cover it with pools. And I got thinking about this. Because I think that what I do when I hit the valley of Becca, when I get into a desert season, the first thing that I think about doing is saying, God, send the rain. God, send the rain. I feel like I'm getting a whole bunch of blank looks right now. You are all liars. Every single one of us, when we hit that trying time, that difficult time, we immediately turn to God and say, God, you fix this. You do something about this. Why is it that I've been diagnosed with cancer? You need to heal this right now. Why is it that I've lost my job? You need to provide a new job for me right now. Where are the autumn rains? Why is this desert still a desert? Where are my pools of resource, pools of life-giving water? When I'm here in this desert, I always, always immediately start looking for the autumn rains. But this verse has a different twist to it. It says that they make it. A place of wells and then the rains come and that annoys the heck out of me if I've got wells I don't need your stupid rain God anyone recognize that it's like why make me dig those stupid wells when you got resource in heaven that you could just snap your finger and let it all rain down 
But God began to stir something up in me because it continues to say they go from strength to strength. Perhaps God has a reason for you needing to learn how to dig some wells. Because he's not wanting you to become this self-absorbed, this person that has no backbone and no steel to them. At the first sign of trouble, you drop the lot. And you just huddle up and you're like, God, where are you? But God put something in my heart as well. The fact that living water was both found underneath the ground as well as in heaven is the same water. So many of us are looking for God's provision when God's provision was always under your feet. And some of us need to realize this, that deserts are always, always only a surface level issue if you learn how to dig wells. Let me say this again, deserts are only, always a surface level issue when you learn how to dig wells. Surface level. Now, I'm not trying to say that it's easy. I'm not trying to say that it's, it's water off a duck's back. Probably the wrong analogy since we're talking about dryness, but... <laughs> I'm not trying to say that there's not going to be tension. I'm not trying to say that there's no difficulty. But I'm trying to say that God's resource is always there for you. It's just that we need to learn how to look beneath the surface of what is going on. And we need to start digging. We need to start digging. I remember I, went, I was in the Singapore army for two years, not by choice. My beautiful body should not have been put through two years of torture. And uh, I was in the Singapore army for two years. And I remember we went through basic training. And in basic training, part of it is that we needed to learn how to dig trenches. And they gave us this tool. I've got a picture of it, if, um, if we can find it. It's a weird-looking thing. And this tool is literally called an ET tool. And it couldn't have been more aptly named because when we first looked at that, we were like, this must come from an alien planet. This is an entrenching tool, an ET entrenching tool. And um, it's not like a spade, in case you didn't know. Maybe some of you have never used a spade before, but spades are kind of like straight line, and you kind of dig and you kind of move, move on with it. But that's, that's not that. That is an ET thing. <laughs> and I remember we, we went for our first, what do they call it, field camp? Is it called? I don't know if it's, I, I, I can't remember. It was a long time ago. We went for our first ever field camp, and it was, I think, um, like a, a, a three, I don't know, five-day thing um, out in the jungle. And it was like halfway through that they were like, all right, take out your ET tools and start digging shell scrapes. Now, a shell scrape basically is a trench that is only the length of your body, and deep enough so that um, if the, the enemy uses mortars and bombs and stuff, the shrapnel will go over you. It's completely stupid, but that's what it is. And you kind of dig a little step as well so that you can put your rifle on the top. And yeah, anyway, <laughs> I'm still going through therapy for those moments. But we had to dig our shell scrapes. And um, 
So we took out this tool. And uh, the, the thing about this thing is that it's really good at breaking up hard ground. What you do is that you hold a blade, uh, the, the handle, and then you just whack it down, and it breaks up a lot of hard ground. It does that. And um, so an hour had passed, and I had a shell scrape full of loose sand, loose soil, but they were all in the shell scrape. The, the, the thing about this tool is that it's good for breaking things up, but it wasn't very good at getting the things out unless you know how to use it. And because it came from an alien planet, I had never used it before. And so after an hour, I had a whole bunch of loose soil. I had an outline of what I needed, but it was still completely filled in. Another hour had passed, and I probably leveled it. And um, I still had a nice outline, but I still did not have a shell. It took me three and a half hours to dig one little trench. And then I had the reassuring voice of my sergeant who looked at my terrible looking trench and uh, had pity on me and he let me rest. That was my basic training. Through my army life, I, I dug another maybe four or five trenches. By the last time, I did it in half an hour. Why? Because I went from strength to strength. A tool that was completely foreign to me and useless to me, through use, became a very effective tool. And I'm wondering whether that's the sense that God has for us, that some of us have got amazing tools that God has placed in your hands and in your life, but because you've never used it before, it seems to come from an alien planet. You look at it and you go, what the heck is the use of this? Some of you have started opening up your Bibles for the first time, and you're looking at this, and you're reading crazy stories about Jesus healing other people, and then you're going like, what has this got to do with me? Isn't Jesus dead? Where is he? You're reading stories in the Old Testament about killing animals and sacrificing them. You're reading about times where, uh, where certain foods were not allowed to be eaten, and you're going, what has that got to do with me? Maybe it's because you're holding the tool for the first time. And if you put it down now, you will never learn how to go from strength to strength. Perhaps it's the first time over this last 14 days so far as we are in this 21 days of prayer and fasting. It's the first time that you ever fasted. And you're going, all I'm getting is hungry, God. Not for you, but for some good piece of steak. I've been there. I am there. And, um, <laughs> and, and, and well, what's the point of this? What, what's happening? Maybe it's because you're holding the tool for the first time. You go for a lift group and you're like, they ask really deep questions and I'm not comfortable with that. Maybe you're using it for the first time. Maybe through constant use, these tools become useful for digging the wells that God, to access what God has got for us. Deserts are always surface level issues when we learn how to dig wells. I want to take you to, I'm running completely out of time, but I want to take you to Genesis 26. And in Genesis 26, we read about Abraham's son, Isaac. And Isaac is now kind of it. Abraham is gone, and so Isaac is um, taking charge in this story. And in um, Genesis 26, verse 12, it says this, Isaac planted crops in that land, and the same year reaped a hundredfold.
because the Lord blessed him. The man became rich and his wealth continued to grow until he became very wealthy. He had so many flocks and herds and servants that the Philistines envied him. So all the wells that his father's servants had dug in the time of his father Abraham, the Philistines stopped up filling them with earth. Then Abimelech said to Isaac, move away from us. You have become too powerful for us. I just want to point out something before we move forward in this uh, account. And that is the fact that God has got growth in store for you. Isaac planted crops and in that year reaped a hundredfold. And when I look at that, I see the hand of God in it. But I also remember that God has said to every single one of us, be fruitful and multiply. That when you abide in me and I in you, ask for whatever you will and you will receive, you will bear fruit in season. God's desire for us is to be fruitful, to be able to multiply. Pastor Beck spoke to us about what Pastor Corey said into our church a couple of weeks ago, and a part of that is multiplication. Multiplication through babies. Some of you need to start to get to work because our church needs to grow, and there's multiplication in store for us. But what I'm saying is that there is always more. There is always more. But guess what happened when Isaac got more? He ran out of resource. He was in um, this place called the Philist, uh, Felicia, if you will, the area of Felicia. And, 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 and the king of Felicia was Abimelech. And he was using Abimelech's water. He was using Abimelech's land. And Abimelech, after a while, said, you're growing too strong for us. We don't like you anymore. Get off our land. Growth will always take you to a point where you need to move. Some of us want growth, but some of us don't want to move. Some of us want success, but some of us are not willing to prepare for it. Some of us want to expand, but some of us are too comfortable where we are. And that's always the case as you look through the principles of God. When you want to grow, you better have land in order to grow. And so what Isaac did is that he continued, uh, he, he moved on, and in verse 17 we read, So Isaac moved away from there. He went away from Abimelech's water and encamped in the valley of Gerar where he settled. Isaac reopened the wells that had been dug in the time of his father Abraham, which the Philistines had stopped up after Abraham died, and he gave them the same names his father had given him. And I want to just take another moment here to just say, parents, people who have done a bit of your journey and a little bit older in life, you play such an important role in the growth of other people. When you need to leave Abimelech's water, you need Abraham's roadmap. Abimelech's water, I think, represents to us a time where we don't have to fight for any, any resources for ourselves. Everything is fresh revelation coming from the mouth of the pastor, coming from the mouth of your leaders, the people who are mentoring you, the people who are coming around you, and everything is great. But there will come a time when Abimelech's water is not going to be enough anymore because you are going to be growing. So if you have become a Christian at Lift Church, and you love everything that's taking place. You love the worship, and you love this little Asian guy who shouts at you every Sunday, and like, wow, look at this revelation. It's so good. You will, you will be here, and in six months, if you don't start to dig wells, you're going to think that my messages are extremely stale. You're going to think that I've got nothing to offer to you. 
Why? Because God has never intended for us to be living off someone else's water. But then when we stop living off someone else's water, what the heck do we do? That's where Isaac had it great because his father had dug a whole bunch of wells and probably told Isaac, Hey, son, I found water here. I found water here. I found water here. And I found water here. By the time you need it, they might be stopped up. And you're going to need to do a little bit of digging. But I guarantee you, you will find water here, here, and here. Parents, can I ask you, are you giving your children roadmaps to find living water? Are you helping your children recognize the importance of Bible reading, of prayer, of seeking after God? Are, are you helping them to say, when, when you do that, keep going because you will find a fresh source of water? Are you helping the next generation find those wells? Are we providing a roadmap for those who are coming up after us? So you had the first step, Abimelech's water, someone else's revelation. We move on and we take Abraham's roadmap and we find guided revelation. This is where other people help us. We go to Bible college, that's guided revelation. We, we, we go to lift groups, that's guided revelation. And that's all good and well. But then as we continue to read on in Isaac's story, something else happens. In verse 19, it says, Isaac's servants dug in the valley and discovered a well of fresh water there. Isaac's servants dug in the valley, the desert, and discovered a well of fresh water there. But the herders of Gerar quarreled with those of Isaac and said, The water is ours. So he named a well Isaac, because they disputed with him. Then they dug another well, but they quarreled over that one also, so he named it Sitna. He moved on from there and dug another well, and no one quarreled over it. He named it Rehoboth saying, now the Lord has given us room and we will flourish in the land. The third step that I think is important in our lives is that we need to get to Rehoboth. You might have gone through living under someone else's revelation and you might have got to a place where you started to follow guided revelation, but you will always need in your level of maturity to get to a place where you are self-feeding Christians. If you're not needing to depend on someone else for the sustenance that God has for you, but you are seeking it out by yourself. But then as you are doing it, trust me, you will get to places called Isaac and Sitna, where it's disputed water. Where the water isn't quite there yet. It is disputed. It is clouded over. It is not completely yours. And this, I think, is the word that God was putting in my heart. There are too many of us that stop at Isaac and Sitna. And too few of us that go on to Rehoboth. God has got room for us to grow. But some of us stop because we started digging, we got somewhere, and someone else took it from us. Maybe it was wounds, maybe it was hurt, maybe it was misunderstandings, maybe it was relational breakdowns, maybe it was, I don't know, Things always happen when you go after Rehoboth. Rehoboth might not be your next attempt. It might be two attempts time. It might be your third attempt. But you won't know until you start digging. We need to start digging. We need 
to understand that Christianity is not always about the autumn rains. It's sometimes the resources of God is under our feet and we need to dig a little bit deeper. We need to use the tools that God has given to us. You know, there's never a dumb question in Christianity. This is one of the things that I've probably seen so much of. Christians don't understand what the Word of God is saying. And instead of digging a little bit deeper, we just stop and say, oh, maybe God will reveal it to me one day. I don't know why, but it doesn't happen that way often. It requires you going a little bit deeper. I will do you a disservice if I tell you that Abimelech's water is always enough. It serves my ego to be your source of water. It serves my purposes. To have you coming every Sunday and for me to tell you that you need me. And that's why I said this word is probably not a very nice word because I'm telling you I'm not enough. I barely got enough for myself sometimes. You need to go on from Abimelech's water, get some guidance along your way, but don't stop. Keep going till you get to Rehoboth. Don't stop till you get enough. There's a Rehoboth that God has planned for each and every one of us. But it depends on us pushing through and getting there. Why? Because God has got greater for you and He's not just growing your circumstances. He's growing you. He's not just changing your circumstances. He's changing you. He's growing your faith. He's growing your trust. He's growing your love. He's growing your hope. He's growing your, uh, your, your vulnerability to Him, but a, a, a strength so that the wounds that come from people, which will come, you're able to withstand. The number of people that have told me, I want to be a pastor one day, and I'm like, fantastic, mate. You have chosen a noble call. And then I tell them, by the way, you're going to get hit along the way. Is that, oh, really? I don't want that. Pay me nine to five. That's easier. It is easier. But you will never live up to the call. You will never find the living waters that God has for you because you are only staying in Sitna. You're only staying in Isaac when Rehoboth is just round the corner. You know, the, the story, if you continue reading Genesis 26, it's kind of cool because Isaac is now self-sufficient. He's now feeding himself on a daily basis from Rehoboth, and he continues digging. He's not satisfied with just Rehoboth. He continues to dig, and he finds himself back at Beersheba again, that famous little town that we've been talking about since the start of this morning. He finds himself back at Beersheba, and then you know what happens? Abimelech comes to find him. And Abimelech now says, let's make a treaty because you're now way more powerful than us. I'm not talking about this power trip. I'm not talking about position. But what I'm saying is that God always has more for you. So much so that some of you, I hope all of you will go beyond me. So I've got to come to you and say, I need your water now. How cool is that? How cool is that? That's the cycle that God has for us, not to stay under Abimelech's water, but to have water enough to feed other people 
Someday you can become Abimelech's water for someone else that is starting their journey. And then maybe perhaps you can be Abraham giving someone else a roadmap in your journey. But guess what? You need to do the hard yards. You need to get from Abimelech's water following the roadmap to get to Rehoboth. Some of us are just plain Christian. I'm not willing to get our hands dirty. I've been there. I thought I had salvation and that's good enough, isn't it? God loves me. I'm satisfied. Oh my gosh. Jesus said in John 14 verse 12, if you believe in me, greater things than these shall you do. There's untapped potential. There's untapped miracles. There's untapped influence. There is untapped deeds. There's untapped greatness on the inside of each and every person. Salvation is amazing. I will never move on from salvation. But my salvation is that I was saved from my past. I was saved from my sin so that I can now proclaim the Word of God. And I know that when I'm proclaiming the Word of God, it's coming from tainted lips. It's coming from a place where I'm not all there, and that's why I need to dig those wells. This morning, I got here and felt like I was in the desert. But right now, I've been digging while I'm standing here. (laughs) I've been saying, God, I need you. This word isn't going to come out of me unless you are with me. And if this is really your word, then it's going to go out and it's not going to return void. I'm hoping that it's not my words, church. Because I believe that there are people that need to push on. I believe that some of you are stuck. You're looking at your situation. You're gone. Why is there all this death and dryness in my life? Let me tell you, that's a surface issue. I empathize with you. It is difficult. It is dry. It is, it is life-sapping at times. It feels like your energy is all gone. But God's grace yeah, come on. is just under your feet. Yeah. And you will tap into it if you keep digging. Can we get the band up this morning? Worship is an amazing way to dig. Worship has this ability to take our eyes off our situation and to look to what God is doing. Worship has this way of bringing us back in touch with God. And if there's one thing that I can just add before I close, is that living water, what is that all about? In John chapter 4, Jesus says, I am the living water. Digging wells isn't about finding more power. It isn't about finding some supernatural miracle. It's about finding Jesus. He never leaves you nor forsake you, but sometimes you need to dig a little bit deeper. Sometimes he's right there and he's always been there, but it's covered up with all these cares and worries that we have. And we need to learn to dig past them and say, wow, you've been there the whole time. Worship helps us to go, oh my gosh, there you are, God. You've never left my side and you've never forsaken me. Even though I felt dry, you've been holding me up and you've been right there. Can I just talk to those who don't even know who this Jesus is? He's God who came to earth to die on a cross for your sin so that you would not need to pay the penalty by yourself. He died a torturous death 
to set you free. And then he says, confess your lips, believe in your heart, and that day salvation is yours. For some of you, this is the first well you will ever dig. It's, the, it's digging a well of saying, God, I receive your salvation. I'm going to action my faith. I'm going to believe in my heart. I'm tired of doing this life alone, and I need you. Every eye closed, every head bowed. Let's say this prayer together. Dear Jesus, I invite you into my life. I know that I'm a sinner. I know I've fallen short. But I know that you came and died on the cross for my sin. So come live in me. Wash me. Make me whole. Amen. Thank you for tuning in today. If you would like to find out more about Lyft, check out our website at theliftchurch.com.au.